Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode number seven of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. First, let me start this episode by saying that the recent earthquakes in Turkey and Syria caused just a tragic loss of life. During the night of February 6th, 2023, while people were asleep, two powerful earthquakes hit. One of 7.8 magnitude, the other was 7.5 magnitude. And they hit southeastern Turkey and northwestern Syria. As of February 14th, 2023, more than 41,000 people were dead. You heard that correctly, 41,000 dead. And that number will continue to grow. You've seen the news pictures, and so have I. They're gut-wrenching. I cannot get the news video out of my mind of a middle-aged father sitting in the rubble, weeping, his hand over his eyes, holding the hand of his daughter. She was dead. As she lay buried under slabs of cement that used to be their home. And he refused to let go of her dead hand, even though people encouraged him to. It makes me think of my own daughter. I know from my my own past research on grief that an average of nine people, relatives, loved ones, friends, an average of nine people are grieving each each dead person. That's a whole lot of grief, my friend. 41,000 people dead times nine. That's 369,000 people are now actively grieving the loss of someone special to them. The hope of finding people alive has now dwindled. As of today, it's been, let's see, nine days since the earthquakes hit. Rescue efforts are now moving to reconstruction efforts, and the rebuilding is going to take years Yeah, millions are still alive, but they've lost everything. Everything. Living in, they're living in white tents if they're lucky. They've lost their homes or school, shelter, warmth, food, their jobs, everything. What are they left with? The clothes on their back? Maybe a white tent if they're lucky. And others, other whole families are living out in the open trying to stay warm. So what do we do when we see such a need? Well, here's what I've realized over the years. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Sending your prayers or your thoughts, that's cheap. That's an easy way out. Putting the little two hands in prayer on your social media pages is cheap. Your words, your thoughts, your prayers do almost nothing to help these people. Instead, I encourage you to give generously to help them as my wife and I have. Let's, let's put our money 
where our mouth is. I've vetted numerous charities through Charity Navigator, and the charity that I'm going to give generously to is the Syrian American Medical Society Foundation. You can vet them yourself at charitynavigator.org, or you can go to their website directly at lowercase sams, S-A-M-S hyphen, USA.net. Or if you'd like to donate, you can do that too at sams-usa.net forward slash donate forward slash. Let's not take the cheap and easy way out. Let's dig deep. Dig deep and give generously. Let's help these people. On this episode, my special guest is hospice nurse Penny Hawkins-Smith. What an interesting person she is. I'm thrilled to have her on the show. You're really going to enjoy her as I enjoyed her. It's important to know that hospice care is for people who have six months or less to live. Hospice care is a special kind of care that focuses on the quality of life of people who have been diagnosed with advanced life-limiting illness. Hospice provides compassionate care for people in the last phases of an incurable disease, and it helps them live as fully and comfortably as possible. As I said in a recent blog post on the 1795 website, you may want to read it, talking about adding life to our remaining days. Hospice is the only thing that I've discovered that adds life to a person's remaining days. You see, the philosophy of hospice is to kind of accept the last phases of disease. They, they kind of accept the final stage of life, and it affirms life. They affirm life, but they don't try to hasten or postpone death. They treat the person and symptoms of the disease rather than treating the disease itself. And a whole team of professionals comes together and works together to manage the symptoms so that a person's last days may be spent with dignity and quality surrounded by their loved ones. Hospice care is also family-centered. It includes the patient and the patient's family in making all the decisions. You see, the number of Americans over 65 continues to increase faster than ever before. We that are health types, we know that age is positively associated with the risk of many diseases and with death. And so the number of Americans who use hospice services is increasing. In 2020, there were 5,100 hospice care agencies in the United States. And these agencies took care of 1.72 million patients in the United States. You see, in the U.S., there's a definite shift going on. There's a definite shift occurring in terms of the location of death. And that shift is happening away from hospitals, nursing homes, long-term care facilities. And the shift is moving towards the home of the dying person. That means more hospice care is going to be needed in the home. For example... According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, the percentage of all deaths from all causes that occurred in a hospital decreased from 48% in 2000 to just 35% in 2019. 
2018. And during that same time period, the percentage of deaths that occurred in a decedent's home, a dying person's home, increased from 23% to 31%. Do you see the shift? Oh, by the way, before I forget it, if you're interested in learning more about caring for or communicating with patients or loved ones who are dying, or maybe even the challenges of being in that situation yourself someday, the 1795 Group is hosting a virtual workshop on this topic, Caring for Dying Patients. The date and time are Sunday evening, April 30th, 2023 at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I've recruited some great experts to talk during the workshop to lead it, including hospice nurses and a VP of hospice for VITAS. It's going to be good. One thing that's great about our workshops is that you can attend virtually from home. Registration's only five bucks, and that goes to a vetted charity. And 100% of your donations go to that vetted charity, in this case, the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. None of our speakers are paid. We don't make any money on these workshops. So why this foundation and not another? Why the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation? Well, I admit it was my personal choice because my dad died of pulmonary fibrosis about five years ago. And I want to support the good work of the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. You can find out more about our upcoming events and workshops, and you can even register on our website. It's really easy at 1795group.com. As I said, hospice nurse Penny is very interesting to talk to. She has her RN her BSN, and CHPN. Do you know what that stands for? It's Certified Hospice Nurse. She has Certified Hospice Nurse credentials. Penny became a nurse kind of late in life, honestly, and kind of found hospice nursing almost by mistake, by accident. She'll tell you about it in the interview. We'll let her tell you the story. Here she is, Hospice Nurse Penny. Hope that you enjoy today's episode. Well, hello, everyone. This is Tim Jordan, your host, and I am so pleased today to have a special guest with us. We have Nurse Penny Hawkins-Smith, otherwise known as Nurse Penny. We're just going to call her Nurse Penny for short. She's a hospice nurse, and today we're talking about death and dying from the perspective of a hospice nurse. You know, we had an undertaker in, we had a mortician Death and Dying from the Perspective of a Mortician, and I've taught Death and Dying at the University of Toledo for 22 years now, so we got you covered. Nurse Penny and I got you covered very well. So, Nurse Penny, how you doing? I'm good, thank you. You're out on the West Coast, I think? Yes, I am in eastern Washington State. Yeah, the state of Washington. So, let's get right into it. Um, I'm interested in your journey into hospice nursing. You know, we have a nursing program here at the University of Toledo. A lot of undergraduate pre-nursing students take my death and dying course. But what in the world wanted you, I mean, how did you end up in hospice nursing? Well, first of all, I didn't go to nursing school until I was 40. Uh, I was a late bloomer. 
And when I went to nursing school, I knew that I wanted to do some kind of service work. Uh, in my youth, I was a little misguided, got into trouble quite a bit. Um, I can't believe turned- that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, finally turned my life around and, and felt like I wanted to do something meaningful. Um, my uh, husband at the time, uh, his stepmother had died about a year before I went to nursing school of mm. cancer and was on hospice. And I was oh. really impressed with those nurses and the autonomy that they practiced under and their compassion and caring and I just felt like I, I wanted to do service work. So okay. my program didn't really address, and, and most don't. My nursing program, we had maybe an hour of lecture on hospice, and that was about it. Uh, prior to becoming a hospice nurse, I had no experience other than my my step-mother-in-law who um, – I was not present when she was in her dying process. I wasn't present when she died, and I didn't see her after she died. So so really prior to being a hospice nurse, I didn't have a lot of experience with death and dying. You I, really didn't? I, no. So it really was a personal experience that exposed you to some hospice nurses, and you really liked what you saw. And then in your nursing program, there was maybe an hour of exposure. By the way, I'm doing – research on physical uh, physician assistants, PAs, training mm. programs, how many of them do adequate end-of-life education. We Our hypothesis is not very many, but we'll see. So you got into nursing late. It was a personal experience. And then tell us a little bit more about that journey into hospice nursing because I'm sure you didn't just start as a hospice nurse. No, I I didn't just start as a hospice nurse, and I, I always recommend if people want to be a hospice nurse, they should get at least two years of experience in another field of nursing. I recommend oncology, ICU, or long-term care are the best uh, areas of nursing that will lend to hospice nursing. For me, I knew I wanted to be a hospice nurse right away, but I was a licensed practical nurse to start with, and I didn't think that licensed practical nurses could work in hospice. Um, So I went to a clinic, and I worked in a family practice clinic for a year. Hmm. And uh, and then as I started to work towards getting my RN, I knew that I was going to need to have more actual nursing nursing under my belt as far as you know, doing skilled procedures and being exposed to sick, more sick people than you get when you're in a family practice clinic. So I went to work in a hospital on a med surge floor and I worked there for three months and hospitals tend to do cyclical layoffs of LPNs. About every 10 years, they decide that they don't need LPNs and they lay them all off. So I happened to be in that cycle and was laid off. So during that time, And let me back up and just say one of the reasons I went to nursing school was because my husband and I had decided to be divorced and I was a stay-at-home homeschooling mom and I needed a career. So I decided Mm -hmm. I chose nursing. Uh, So during that time now, I was um, divorced and dating somebody new. And on my way to his house, I noticed building a hospice care center. So when I was laid off at the hospital, I thought, okay, I'm an LPN, but I'm still going to go and see if they are hiring LPNs. Mm -hmm. And they were. 
So I, I was so hired. You walked in the you walked in the door and asked him, or yeah, I walked in the door and I said, um, "I'm looking for a job. I'm an LPN. Are you hiring?" They hadn't even they hadn't even opened the care center up. They were just getting ready to wow. open it up in the next few weeks after that. Now that was a situation where I was able to be very successful because it was at hospice care center where you are there at the bedside with people who are dying on the regular, Mm -hmm. like all the time. I had a fantastic mentor. And so for me, that was the perfect situation for me to be able to learn and grow in the environment of hospice nursing. If a person, if a new grad is lucky enough to get into that situation, then I say go for it. But, But most hospice nurses work out in the field. They're home hospice nurses. Care centers are far and few between. And that's why I always say people that want to be hospice nurses need to get some experience. They need to get some skills. And I'm not just talking about putting in a catheter or accessing an implanted chest port, but actual experience with learning how to talk to people about death and dying, having those difficult conversations, identifying the stages of dying and being able to let people know what is unfolding for them. And you, you can't really get that experience if you're a new grad out in the field where you're by yourself being thrown into a situation that's, you know, like operating in a vacuum. So I and was just very fortunate. Yeah, you certainly don't get that experience at a family practice center, as an example, or no. pediatrics or something like that. So, yeah, so your advice to a nursing student, like here at the University of Toledo, we have a lot of nurses an undergrad nursing student would be get some experience in like an ICU oncology where you're going to be talking to patients about uh, care is futile or you know, don't do it. And also patient's family, right? Mm-hmm. Patient's family members. I remember my, my daughter was a rookie nurse. I, I told this story to my students the other day. She came home and she, my daughter doesn't cry. She's pretty tough, um, pretty tough cookie. And she was crying. I said, what's wrong? She goes, the doctor put me in a bad, bad situation. He said, do you see that guy over there? He said, go tell that guy and all of his family around the bed and all of his grandkids and his wife and his kids, go tell him to get his stuff in order. And Katie looked at him and said, what does that even mean? Hmm. <laughs> Haven't you told him, doctor, that he's terminal? And the doctor turned around on like, on, on a nickel and said, no, and some, mumbled something like, you do it, you do it. So here this young rookie nurse 21 years old, was put in a situation to tell this whole family, your your dad, your husband, your grandpa, he needs to get his stuff in order. What's that even mean? <laughs> so yeah, this, yeah. this is personal. Yeah, well, and I'm, I mean, that that's like using euphemisms and telling people that their person, you know, went to heaven or passed away yeah. or, you know, why... Why skirt around the issue to to tell somebody get your affairs in order? Like that just dishonors the person and the family so much. And and exactly what does that mean? What do you mean get my affairs in order? It, well, that's it's what they just said. Unbelievable, you know. Like, yeah, I'm sure they did. Like, what, what does it what mean? Does that what, mean? Is, what do you mean? You know, yeah, what do you mean, doctor? Or what do you mean, nurse? And she could, of course, she's not allowed to tell him the diagnosis or the prognosis, and he didn't. And it just points to the fact that he was uncomfortable talking to patients about, well, any more medical care is futile, you really should call hospice. So well, that's my it, personal know, story. 
in defense of the providers, and believe me, I've had some multiple situations working in hospice where I am the nurse telling the person that mm-hmm. they're dying and it could be right now, um, or you know, or, or telling a young woman, a 28 year old woman, that, that mm. the doctor thinks that she has weeks to months, and she was told by the oncologist that she has a year, and here she is on hospice, which literally means you have a life expectancy of six months or less. Yeah, uh, you know, so I've dealt with these situations, but in, in their defense, they're not taught that in medical school. They are taught curative medicine. They're not taught how to let someone go. They're taught that somebody dying on your watch is a medical failure, and so they don't want it. They're not comfortable having those conversations. They're not comfortable talking about those things. No, we could we could share a lot of stories here about people that we know, but I, I need to move on. So tell us your journey into social media because you're what we would call a, a major influencer, right? You have a lot of followers. I, th- I looked last night, you have 589,000 followers on TikTok. 590 now. A, <laughs> 590. Yeah. You have 137,000, maybe more, on Instagram. And 4.5 thousand or 4,500 on Facebook. That's a lot of people. So tell us about that journey. How did you get so many followers? Yeah, I'm on YouTube too, by the way. I'm 89,000 on YouTube. Oh, there you go. I had 89,000. Uh, <laughs> uh, during the pandemic, during the lockdown, I heard about TikTok and I was bored at the time and and uh, checked the app out and um Got sucked right in and started trying to learn how to shuffle dance. That was my first <laughs> my first goal was to learn how to shuffle dance, and um, and I did not. And you I never taped did. yourself learning. You recorded no, yourself. I, learning? I never did record myself uh, learning. I never learned, so I never recorded oh. myself. I did make some of the what they call trends, you know, TikTok trends, which are silly mm-hmm. little videos that had nothing to do with death and dying. And then one day I told a story about a hospice patient and it went viral and I started picking up a lot of followers and I realized that people want to hear this. They want to hear about this. And I am a, a passionate advocate for hospice and death and dying education and normalizing death. And I realized that this could be a grassroots movement where I can, I can teach people outside of my workplace about death and dying and maybe even further upstream from when they go on hospice because so often we get them on hospice and the doctor hasn't even told them that they're dying. They just told them that hospice can help. And so, um, you know, when you get a person on hospice services who is literally actively dying and you know they're going to die within the next day or two, you don't have a whole lot of time to provide education to the family. And and that is a key um, important part of being a hospice nurse is educating around death and dying and normalizing the dying process so people know what to expect and they know how to be with their person and not be afraid of what's unfolding. Kind of felt like this is a way for me to um, reach people before they get to that point, hopefully, and and it has been working. Well, let's hope it's successful because it's greatly needed, as we both know. Uh, My sister, Debbie Jackson, who's a VP of operations for VITAS, uh, tells every day of patients who come in and she says, now, you know, you're in hospice. I'm sure you have your advanced directives done. And they look at each other and kind of go, uh, what's advanced directives? Like, you don't have a living will or durable power of attorney for healthcare, none of that? 
So it's greatly needed, and Americans don't like talking about it. That's the problem. The root problem goes societal. It's cultural that we don't like talking about. So for people that wanted to find your social media pages or see your videos or learn about this content, how, how can they get a hold of you or how can they find you? Do you have a website? I am, My username is Hospice Nurse Penny on all the socials. Uh, I am on YouTube, as I said. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and, um, and TikTok at Hospice Nurse Penny. Okay, very good. That's almost a full-time job, isn't it? It it is. I actually did have to cut my hours back at my my real job because it does keep me really busy. So I bet. Well, let's switch gears a bit and and talk about hospice versus palliative care. Okay. Um, a, a lot of my students come into my class and they think they're the same, and I have to teach them they're not the same. Mm-hmm. So, if you would be so kind, please give us some education about hospice versus palliative care? Well, first, I always like to start with how are they the same? And hospice and palliative care are not just focused on the disease and treating the disease. They are whole person care. So we care about uh, any social issues or spiritual issues that may arise um, for these people. And then there is a lot of uh, symptom management that is involved. So typically a person goes on to palliative care when they need symptom management. Now to be on palliative care, you can be terminal with any life expectancy or have a life limiting disease. With hospice, you must have a terminal disease with a life expectancy of six months or less. On palliative care, you can have treatment. You can concurrently be seeking treatment for your disease. So if you have cancer, you can be getting chemotherapy or radiation. On hospice, you either are making a decision to stop the treatment or the treatment is no longer working or available for you. So there is no more treatment. Palliative care is typically done in the hospital or in a clinic setting, although there is starting to be some community-based palliative care where the palliative care providers will go and see the patient. Hospice is almost always provided to the person in their home or wherever they call home. So it could be a house, it could be a, a boarding home, it could be a nursing home, it could be a van down by the river, uh, it could be on a hospital floor, but mostly it's going to be in a, in a home. Um, and the focus of hospice is end of life. We are now focusing on end of life. And the nice thing about hospice is that you can you can do what's important to you. We We always say quality is more important than quantity when you're on hospice. We're not looking for trying to get more days. We're trying to put more, what is it they say? Not more days of life, but more life in your days. Uh, People Mm -hmm. can avoid hospitalization. They can avoid the ER. They don't have to go to clinic appointments anymore. They can take that time that is very limited and precious and use it for what they want to use it for. Yeah, in a a previous podcast, I said something that, you know, looking back, I think is remarkable. And I said, how can people plan for good death if they don't even know they're dying? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they, I think 11%, one of my research studies proved 11% of people that are on chemo, active chemotherapy, don't even know they're dying. And yet the oncologists continue to, you know, put people on that medical treadmill. So, hey, let me ask you this question about hospice. You said six months or less to live. 
Do they ever kick people out because they're doing too good? So the way that the hospice benefit works is that you have to have that terminal diagnosis of six months or less. And the first benefit period is three months. The end of three months, we don't say, do they now have a life expectancy of three months or less? We ask, do they have a life expectancy of six months or less? If the answer is yes, and and the clinical indicators are there to evidence that, we keep them on for another three months. Then Now they've been on for six months. And again, we ask the question, do they have a life expectancy of six months or less? And if the answer is yes, then we have a 60-day benefit period. And we keep every 60 days after that, a provider, a nurse practitioner, or a doctor will do a face-to-face visit and reevaluate the patient. And as long as they continue to have that trajectory towards an end of life that is estimated within six months, they can stay on service. So do we ever discharge people alive? Yes, we do. Sometimes we have people that come on service. It happens a lot with dementia patients uh, who maybe they get pneumonia, they're in the hospital or they get a UTI and they they are really sick and they look like they're going to die within six months, but they load them up with antibiotics in the hospital and then they improve. And now we think they're going to live longer than six months. And so we will discharge them alive. We do a live discharge. They're still terminally ill. It's just that they are expected to live longer. Now we do get people who, you know, death is unpredictable, obviously. And, you know, we get people who stay on service sometimes for years because they continue to have that very, very slow decline where the next level of decline is death. There's no, like, it can't go any lower. The next thing that's going to happen to this person is death. And yet they're just living, living, living really slowly towards that finish line. And they continue to meet the criteria and stay on hospice. But the average length of stay on hospice last time I checked was I think 72 days. So Clearly, there are people who die much faster than that six months. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in my own research, we found that many physicians don't refer early enough. They might give Mm -hmm. a late referral and the person might only be on hospice for a few days and then boom, they're dead. Mm -hmm. Do you see see that in your field? Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes they come onto service and they're actively dying when we admit them to service. Yeah, it happens a lot. I always say, you know, it's great to have an oncologist who's optimistic, but they need to be realistic as well. And certainly do not want to, you know, besmirch the oncologist because they save many, many, many lives. But there is sometimes a disconnect, as you were talking about, where patients don't even know they're dying and they're continuing to get that chemotherapy and they don't know they're dying because nobody has told them. The doctor Mm -hmm. doesn't tell them. And I've had oncologists who themselves could not, you know, I had a oncologist call me one day at the hospice care center to check on a patient. And I told him that she had died. And his response was, he was baffled. Like he couldn't believe that she died. And I'm, you know, you sent her to hospice. What did you think? I think he thought maybe she was going to live longer. And, you know, Stanford did a study uh, a while back and they said that most doctors prognosticate death incorrectly by three months to the good, meaning they tell a person they have nine months, but in reality, they have six months. So they're not good at prognostication. Well, I know it's not an exact science, that's for sure. Um, I have a personal story of Joanne Kleinfelder, who you don't know. Joanne used to teach death and dying here as a doctoral student. She graduated with her PhD, went to Ball State, and taught for a year or two there, and then got cancer in her abdomen. 
And I called her on Christmas Eve because she used to join our family all the time for Christmas Eve dinner and celebration, and she was crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, the oncologist who who just came in like a couple days ago, he's all happy, and he said, you're going to when you get back to teaching at Ball State, you're going to be great. And because you rode those horses and your core was so strong, we got the cancer. He just came in and said, I have two weeks to live. And I didn't know what to say to her. I mean, how do you go from such a high thinking you're going to be healthy to two weeks you're going to die? And um, even though she had taught death and dying, she didn't do very well with the news. Um, so it, it, is a, it is an issue, continues to be an issue, and people like you and I continue to need to work with our doctors and, and help them. Yeah. So let's talk about myths of hospice because... I've heard this one, and I want you to talk about this one and maybe some others you've heard, but I've heard that hospice nurses kill people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, we've got a couple different ways that we do it, apparently. Like we starve them to death, we give them morphine until they die. <laughs> yeah, we, I hear that a lot. Uh, people don't understand that hospice means that your person is dying, and when they come onto hospice services, they are going to die. And, uh, and so, you know, they just automatically, I think, believe that we don't do anything for them that we just kind of give up on them and then and somehow we either give them too much morphine and that causes them to die there's a real misunderstanding around morphine a huge misunderstanding around morphine and the use of morphine um they think that we starve people to death you know we we explain hopefully well so people understand that when a person is dying they're not hungry anymore it's one of the earliest things to happen when a person is dying is they lose their appetite and they start to sleep more. Why? Because their body is shutting down and they're not doing as much. They don't need that uh, caloric intake anymore. They don't need the nutrition, but we don't tell people don't eat. We don't say don't feed them. We say, give them what they want. Give them what they want as much as they want or as little as they want. They may only want a bite or two and that's okay. Let them be your guide. Don't force food. If they don't want to eat, that's okay. It's not helpful to them. You know, that's very difficult for families not to force food yeah, because, because that from the time you're love. an infant, you, you know, right? Yeah. You you give the bottle, you feed the mm -hmm. child, the child grows. You know, food is equivalent to health many times and it's and so I if I'm going to put a plug in for, for April 30th, 1795 group is sponsoring a workshop on how to care for dying patients. And that's one of the main points is it's don't force food, right? Don't force food. So Yeah, and there's a difference between forcing food and and letting somebody have something that they want. And we're not saying don't feed them. We're saying don't force right. them. Give them what that's they right. want. And and food is associated with love. And it's the one thing there are other things too, but it's a big thing caregivers who are not healthcare providers can do for their person is to get them to eat. And so that it's like they feel helpless, I think, sometimes, and they just want to be able to do something that they think is going to make their person better. And, and it's not going to. They're not getting better. No. There is no getting better. Right. Other myths besides hospice nurses kill people? Uh, so hospice is a place. Uh, that is not true. Hospice is a type of healthcare service. There are hospice houses, hospice care centers, but generally speaking, hospice is for patients who are dying. It is end of life care. 
another myth I hear is that you have to be a do not resuscitate uh, code status to be on hospice. That is not true. We don't want people to come onto service and be full code, but they absolutely have the right to make that decision. And we will revisit it often because CPR can break ribs. And when you're talking about a fragile person who is dying, it's especially traumatic and harmful to them. But we also know that because doctors who don't work in hospice are reticent to discuss death and dying, they also don't feel comfortable talking about code status and explaining what that really means. And people come on to service without ever even having that discussion and not understanding, you know, of the potential repercussions from, you know, attempted resuscitation. And so we revisit let's, it. Let's talk about, let's talk about that right now and code status, mm-hmm. if we could, um, you know, when you're terminally ill, I mean, they, they will come to you, usually pastoral care in a hospital, you know, here comes the chaplain with a form and, well, do you have this filled out, Mr. Jordan? And so talk to me about what you can put down on your code status. What's full code versus no code? Full code is do do everything, attempt to resuscitate life in a body that has no life left in it. CPR, uh, you know, um, chest compressions, which are very damaging, can fracture ribs in healthy people, actually. Um, Then intubation, putting a tube down and putting a person on life support. Um, there are other uh, nuanced things that you can address in other types of forms, such as a, we have in Washington State a POLST, which is a portable order for life-sustaining treatment, and it addresses things like tube feeding, antibiotics, those types of things. But typically, you know, like uh, or generally speaking, a full code status is if a person is down without a heartbeat or a breath, you're going to do everything to resuscitate life to that person. A do not resuscitate order means that you let them die a natural death. So sometimes doctors will write D-N-R-A-N-D, do not resuscitate, allow natural death, which is what we encourage in hospice. Uh, A person on hospice is dying. We know that if they die, we don't want to try to bring them back. If we are able to revive them, which, by the way, even in healthy people, the percentage of people that can survive after being dead and be resuscitated is pretty low. You might know the statistics better than me. I think it's like 15% or something like that. It's very low, and we're talking healthy people. Uh, A dying person who is able to be resuscitated is still dying, and now on top of whatever disease they have that's causing them, you know, injury and discomfort and pain, they're likely going to have broken ribs and that's going to even be worse for them. So, and I have had a patient that happened to, and it was terrible. And he was in pain. He was, he was mad because he was a DNR, but that was apparently not honored. Uh, and he had fractured ribs and he was, he was in a lot of pain until he died about a week later. Yeah, that happens a lot. Um, you know, EMT's example, they don't see the the do not resuscitate order or it's not available. And so they do chest compressions or shock them or whatever. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, my gosh, here's a do not resuscitate order. We weren't supposed to do that, right? But I want to talk about the death rattle, if we could. Um, I've had a lot of loved ones, all of my 
my dad is dead, uh, my father-in-law is dead, my mother-in-law is dead. And when they all three of them died, there was kind of like this rattling sound in their chest. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about that? Yeah, it's actually not in their chest. It's in their airway. So when we, who are not dying, are living our life, we swallow our spit down with our, without even thinking about it. Like we swallow these yeah. secretions that we make. I always just say we swallow our spit all day long. We don't even know we're doing it. When a person gets close to the end of their life, they lose the inability or they lose the ability to swallow. Um, that actually happens before they're unresponsive. It's one of those things we ask, mm. are you swallowing okay? And usually they'll start like coughing on thin liquids and then we know, oh, their swallow is starting to fail. Once their swallow begins to fail, they aren't swallowing those secretions down as much anymore, and they will build up in the airway. And when they're breathing, the air moves over those secretions and makes that gurgling or rattling noise. Now, it can be really bad if a person has been very hydrated, there's more fluid on board. I've heard people sound like a washing machine. And Mm. it is very disturbing to the family who hears it. Uh, it is not disturbing to the person who has it because they are unresponsive and not aware. We can tell by looking at their face if they're relaxed and comfortable appearing. It doesn't distress them. They are not aware of it. They're not going to drown in those secretions. There's, suctioning does not help. They're too far down. You have to deep suction. That's uncomfortable for a person and will make more secretions because if you introduce a foreign body into the airway, then the airway responds by making more secretions. Uh, We have medications that can dry them out, but they don't work great. And they also dry the mouth out. So I don't like to use them. I just typically like to educate the family. This is just a noise. It's not harming them. It's just a noise. We put the head of the bed up, we put them on their side, and that works very well to kind of calm those secretions down. They are a good uh, prognosticator of actually uh, people usually get them within about two or three days of death so when the death rattle starts we know that a person is getting pretty close to the end of their life i've I've had patients that went on longer than that you know because there are always exceptions to the rule but um, most often people will die within a couple of days of developing a death rattle Hmm, that's good to know good information to know you know i've heard from my students here at the university uh, after 22 years you collect a lot of stories and I witness it myself, but it seems like when people are dying, actively dying, there's a period where they rally. Um, have you witnessed that as a? As oh well? yes, I have witnessed it many times. Um, statistically, I think it said four out of ten people who are dying will have an end of life rally. Uh, when it happens, we definitely have to educate and manage expectations because people think that their person is getting better. So we, we want to let them know that this is something we see all the time. Uh, we call it a rally. It's like a, a last hurrah. I, I love to consider this a window of opportunity to be able to say goodbye to your person and have some closure. Uh, people can be completely unresponsive, actively dying, and all of a sudden wake up and they want to eat and they want to talk and they want to play games. It doesn't usually last more than about a day. And then they usually die within about a week. So it's another indicator that a person is close to the end of their life. And sometimes we're not even sure if that's what's going on. Sometimes a person might really be declining and then they all of a sudden have this good day. And, and we don't even really, we're not, we're like, yeah, this might be what's going on. They, you know, sometimes people will improve for a while, but, but a true rally is very short lived. It usually only lasts a day or less. 
Now, we don't know what causes it. Uh, There is a medical term for it now. It's called terminal lucidity. And there are some theories Mm. about what causes it, but nobody knows what causes it. Yeah, that's really good to know. And I've seen that. I mean, I, I, I saw one woman was on a documentary uh, TV show, and she, she sat up and started talking to everybody, and they thought, well, she's back. Like, she's back. Well, she wasn't back. She was rallying, mm-hmm. and then and she died, like you said, about two days later. So I'm going to ask you a question that everyone wants to know right now. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever seen any weird stuff at hospice happen or any, like, ghost stories or spiritual stuff like that? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, spiritual is just uh, watching people die. I mean, there's definitely, um, you know, something sacred about that experience. But as far as ghost stories, I could tell you a quick one that comes to mind. Uh, it's very woo-woo. And, you know, when we work in hospice, you get to be kind of woo-woo about things. We see a lot of people who have deathbed visions. Uh, I've had lots of patients who told me that there was somebody in the room that I could not see. Um, but this is definitely... Let's let's talk about that before okay. you get to your story, okay. because I remember when my mother-in-law was dying, she kept saying, I see my dad. Yeah. Well, my dad been dead for 15 years, you know. Mm-hmm. But she could never see the front side of him, only the back side. And he always wore like a top hat. There's my dad. Do you do you see that? And my, my, my cousin, Susan, she kept reaching out for the corner of the room, like... Mm-hmm. I, what are you seeing up there? I don't, I don't, I don't see anybody up there. Do you, do you witness that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, all the time. Uh, my, my theory on the reaching, because we do see them reaching up, reaching out, reaching to the corner, is that they're reaching for those visions of their deceased loved ones. I even had a patient who saw her, her deceased cat. Uh, but I've had many, many patients who told, and, and we call them deathbed visions, but that's kind of a misnomer because they can happen when a person is not on their deathbed. I've had people who told me weeks before their death that they could see somebody. And many times it's up above them or it's in the corner of the room. I vividly remember a patient uh, yelling and I went, uh, he was in our care center and, and I was at the nurse's station. I heard him yelling. I walked into the room. He was looking to the corner of the room. He was crying. He had tears coming down. And he said, Inga, Inga. And I said, is Inga your wife? And he said, yes, yes, she's right there. I see her. And I said, is she coming to get you? And he said, yes, yes, but not today, tomorrow. And I said, oh, he did not die the next day. He died the day after that. And when the caregiver who had taken care of her and him, she had died a year before he did, a caregiver came in to pick up his belongings. And I told her the story. And and without missing a beat, she said, yeah, it was always like Inga to be late. (laughs) <laughs> she knew Inga. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very, very well, here's here, Here's a story for you. So my best friend, Jeff Galbraith, he was a social worker at hospice. And he knows, he heard this firsthand, so I know it's true. So there's this woman comes into hospice, and she's like 87. Her name is Agnes but before she came into inpatient hospice, there was a guy in the same room that occupied the same bed. His name was Larry. And Larry slicked his hair back, you know, like the Brill Cream, mm-hmm. you know, guy they used to use. And he had really bad teeth. And he was dying of liver, the cirrhosis, cirrhosis of the liver. I don't know what it was from. but So Larry dies. 
There's 48 hours passed. They clean the room and everything, sanitize the room. In comes Agnes. And the first night, she's ringing the nurse call button. Come get, you know, help me, help me. And so after the third or fourth time, the nurse manager comes out to Agnes's room. And she says, Agnes, you have to stop this. This is disrupting the nursing staff. She goes, well, it's that guy over there. He, he can't get out. And she said, okay, all right. What's his name? He said his name is Larry. And that's when they start all getting goosebumps. And so she said, okay, what's he look like? And she, well, he greases his hair back, black hair like with brill cream, and he has really bad teeth. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and what else does he say? And so she's like, every time she's like looking at you, he says he can't get out. Hmm. You have to open the windows to get out. And so the nurse went over as a crank window at this hospice, Northwest Ohio Hospice, and opened the window. And Agnes went like this. She, you know, she said, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that weird? That is weird. I mean, she never, never met Larry, never knew Larry was in that room. Wow. I think there's a lot about, a lot about death we don't understand. Oh, yeah. Right? I think so, too. Uh, my uh, my um, question about opening the window. So people ask me that a lot. Do you open the window when a person dies? It is a cultural practice where people want to open a window to let the spirit out. And people will ask me, do you open the window? And I always say, it depends on if the person practices that culture or not. I, just like That's I right. would not say a prayer with somebody who's not religious. I'm not going to open the That's window. Right. Uh, I had an experience with a family at a, a care center that I worked in where the patient died. They weren't present when they showed up. After the patient had already died, they found that the window in the room was open. They were upset. They said, why was the window mm -hmm. open? Um, somebody had opened it, and they felt that the spirit had been let out before they could get there. And and I always think, well, can it just go under the door? Like, it's a spirit. <laughs> you know, it's it's like non-corporeal, right? It can do what it wants to. Why do we need to open a window to let it out? But apparently, maybe they I do. Why, I Larry guess Larry needed, needed it, so... Maybe he didn't. He needed. Like he I don't know why. So, well, I really like. I like the fact that you say we do things based on what the family wants because I vividly remember when I before I became a professor, I was in charge of family practice and internal medicine residents for the Mercy Health System. And I remember this guy. He was. He became our chief resident and became CEO of the hospital system here. And uh, those of you who know him, I'm talking about Imran Andrabi. So Dr. Andrabi comes in and he goes, can I talk to you? I go, yeah, come on in. He looked terrible like he was sick. I said, are you sick? He was Pakistani, he had brown skin, but his, he was pale. And there were sweat beads on his forehead. He goes, I just got slapped in the face by a patient, a patient's wife. And they, the whole group attacked me. I said, what did you do? What did you say? He goes, well, I'm on surgery rotation, as you know. And the 56-year-old husband lost. We lost him on the surgical table. And the attending physician said to me, well, I think you should go tell the family to practice giving bad news. It'd be good for you to practice. So he goes in, and he doesn't know they're Jewish, right? So Dr. Ndavi says, well, it, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We've, we've lost your husband, your father, but... The good news is he's with Jesus Christ. Oh, God. <laughs> and the oh. wife slapped him across the face, and the family attacked him and said, don't you ever. We don't believe in Jesus, right? And so I use that as a good teaching experience that, hey, in America, 
a very diverse society, and there are Jews, there are Muslims, there are Christians, there are some that are agnostics, some that don't believe anything, right? So, right. Um, last question, last question for you, Nurse Penny. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot. All okay. Right? So you know we've been doing these surveys of Americans since around 1940, and anywhere from like 73 to 76 percent of Americans believe in an afterlife. They believe that. Something about us continues to live on. So based on what you've seen, is death a wall? Everything that we are just exterminates? Or is death a door and we go on in a different realm? What do you think? Oh, it's a door. I mean, and that you can chalk that up to just basic, you know, biology or chemistry. We we know that nothing ever really goes away. It just changes its molecular structure, right? And oftentimes there's a lot of a discharge of energy when that happens. And uh, that's what I believe happens with us. I think we are, we are beings that are, you know, we're, we're partially energy. Like that's part of our, our makeup is energy. And I think that that energy continues to live on and, in some way, I don't know if I hope that we retain our consciousness. I think that we probably do. And that's just because of having seen the deathbed visions, having had an experience with my dad who came back to me after he died in the form of energy. I do believe that we retain some consciousness. Um, but I don't know. I, if we float around out there with everybody else, do we disperse into the winds? Do we just, are we just a memory out there? Uh, but we're something. I don't believe that this is the end. I, I just, I cannot believe that this is the end. I've seen too much as a hospice nurse witnessing literally thousands of dying people and seeing time and time again this, this same consistent theme of seeing deceased loved ones when a person is dying to think that we can just randomly all be having the same vision at the end of our life. You know, it just, it's, it can't be a coincidence. Well, there you have it right from nurse Penny. She believes death is a door as do I, I think we live on in some form. Um, Dr. Jim Tucker, if you're interested, he's at the university of Virginia. He's discovered past lives of children and really interesting. They have memories up until they're about four or five years old and they stop talking about it. But he believes I, I, I call him on vacation cause I was so fascinated by reading his book. I had to call him. I said, do you really believe this stuff? He goes, Oh yeah. He goes, not every child has a past life, but he says some of us do. So who knows? No one's been, I, as I tell my classes, no one's ever been dead for weeks and been back to tell us mm -hmm. what, what happens on the other side. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, today we were with nurse Penny Hawkins Smith, otherwise known as nurse Penny. Hospice She's nurse a hospice Penny. nurse, hospice nurse, Penny, hospice <laughs> nurse, Penny. And I hope you enjoyed today's talk. We really, really thank you nurse Penny for being with us on grassroots health. And I really like what you said about the importance of education in shaping this grassroots movement that we're all part of. So thank you for being on today and thank you. we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you very much. The 1795 Group is very happy to tell you about Andy Slavitt's In the Bubble podcast produced and distributed by Lemonada Media. 
You know, every day it seems like the world is on the brink of a crisis. There are just so many serious issues. But you can join Andy Slavitt and various experts on his podcast to make sense of it all. Andy's been called the outsider's insider for a reason. I personally believe he knows everyone. As a former White House advisor, author, crisis response leader, Andy simply finds the right helpers to get us moving forward together, smarter and calmer. Get in the bubble today. In the Bubble podcast is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.